Oh, good morning, everyone. I'm Jeremy. Uh, I'm one of the leaders here, if I haven't met you before. Uh, and it'd be great to get to know you if you're just new to church and wanting to know a bit more about City Light. And, um, and great to be, be, to be back with you. We got back from holidays last week, but I was over at the Burwood campus. Uh, if you're unfamiliar of what's happening there, there was a church email sent out at the end of last year that Cedric, who was the pastor there, resigned. And so at the moment, they are without a lead pastor. So I've been overseeing things there. Gav's with them this morning. Um, but, um, but Vision Sunday coming up in two weeks is when we're going to be laying out what's happening over this year and, uh, and what will be the things for Burwood going forward as well. So look forward for that, uh, to that and, uh, and be praying for us as we manage this in-between season for the Burwood campus in particular. Um, but it's great to be, uh, to be looking into the Psalms at the beginning of the year. And Psalm 96, I'd have to say, is one of my favorite out of the, the entire 150. And the reason for it is, it's the, it's, from my point of view, it's the only psalm in the entire collection that outlines the connection between why Christians, followers of Jesus, sing and why they tell other people about Jesus. What the connection is between singing and what you might call evangelism, that is telling other people the good news of Jesus. But I wonder in thinking about that, how if you are a follower of Jesus here, or even if you're not, how you think about the act of evangelism, of telling other people about Jesus. Years ago, uh, I worked a job that was probably one of the worst that I ever did. It was so bad that I only did one shift. I don't mean to say it was harrowing. There wasn't like any misconduct or anything like that. But it was just, it was just a punishing job. And I, I, the reason I took it was because I'd heard it was reasonably good money, and so I thought it'd be worth a crack. But the job was telemarketing. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried doing that or if you've been on the receiving end of telemarketing, but it was, um, it was a job that was just so punishing. The one, the one shift that I took on was, and it was meant to be what's called like an easy kind of shift because you were calling people from the country and they, they're the, the least likely, I guess, to chew you out verbally on the phone. And so they're most likely to kind of give you a bit of time. But our job was to take a 45-minute survey for which there was no recompense. Like they got no vouchers, no gift cards, nothing. The reward for doing it is that you help a faceless organization monetize your information. So it, it was an incredibly tough gig. But I remember in, in the one shift, which was about three hours long, I think I got through two surveys, which was actually a decent effort. And I remember on one of them, I got to like the third last question, and the guy had just, he'd just had enough. I, because you give him fair warning at the beginning, it's going to take a while, and by then he was done. And I thought, you know what? I am too. I'm like, we're, we're both out. We're finished. I didn't say that on the phone, but that was it for me. It was a horrible job. But it did occur to me at the time that uh, there is a job that's kind of the opposite. That I, I, I wonder whose job this is, but it is someone's job. You know, when they take, when you, you know when they do raffles and one of the prizes is that you can win a house, which in Sydney is worth like a billion dollars, and, uh, and it's someone's job to actually call people up and say to them, hey, you're the winner. You've just won a house for free. You are completely set up. That's someone's job. And that is literally the opposite of telemarketing. Rather than calling them saying, I'm going to harass you for information now and I don't even know you. Instead, you're saying, I don't know you at all and this news is going to change your life. That's one type of job. But there's another type of good news that's equally for the person's benefit and yet probably not as enjoyable a job. You may have heard about the fires that we've been experiencing over this season. If you haven't, I'm not sure where you've been. But it's someone's job to go into a town and to say to people, you've got to get out. It's good news because there's still time. 
It's good news because your life has been saved. It's good news because someone has actually paid enough attention to what's going on to care about your life and to protect it. But I don't think anyone would say that that's a job that they would love to do. When you think about telling other people about Jesus, which of those two jobs do you think it's more like? Just at an experiential level. Is it more like telling someone they've won a house for free, your life has changed forever? Or does it feel more like it's good news, but kind of with a sting in the tail? Get out now while you can, you'll be saved. Which metaphor best fits evangelism? I would put to you, according to Psalm 96, that it's the first. That it's good news. That the motivation to tell others about Jesus is that it's life-changing and good news. That it's like saying to someone, you've just won a multi-million dollar house for free. You might have to leave you know, the premises that you're at now, but it's you are going somewhere far better than where you are. But I would say that most followers of Jesus, at least in our context, probably see it more like the second job. More like the news that like, yeah, it's, it's kind of the case that actually you're going to have to evacuate. It's more like, look, there is, there's kind of good news, but there's a sting in the tail. So imagine this. Imagine how confusing it would be if, um, if someone called you up and they said, um, are, you, are you sitting down right now? Um, are you somewhere comfortable? Are, are there some support people around for you? I just want to tell you that you've won a multi-million dollar house for free. If that was your tone in telling people that news, it would be very confusing, wouldn't it? They would be like, is there a catch? Is there, are they actually giving me a mortgage instead of a house? What's actually going on here? It would be, it would be weird if their tone was kind of of commiseration when they were giving you good news like that. I wonder if the behavior of many followers of Jesus in our context, in our time, gives that impression to our culture. When we go to speak about Jesus, people do it in such an apologetic kind of tone that it almost sounds like it's secretly bad news. Maybe it's like this, even if it's not even just telling someone about Jesus, but just inviting them to some kind of a church event. Where it's like, oh, we've got this thing on a church and look, if, if you're not free, you don't have to come. And uh, Actually, you know what? It's a bad idea. Forget I said anything anyway. If you were to say that, people would be like, gosh, like, is someone going to beat you if you don't invite me to church or something? Is, that, is it something like that? Well, more than that, sometimes it's just the case that if, if, if people know that you're a follower of Jesus, that you, you do this thing with other Christians each week and go there week in and week out and it's something you're really into, but you never tell anyone else about it or, or why you do it, it almost seems like it's one of those things that, people are really into but secretly ashamed of like you know i don't practicing magic cards as adults or something like that (laughs) or whether it's like adult rollerblading or something in that order something that people are, are do you're like i'm into it but i'm not expecting anyone else to be if that's how we relate to telling other people about jesus it's it's confusing it's like telling someone they want a million dollar house but having a tone of commiseration it's baffling If we understand Psalm 96 correctly, telling others about Jesus is meant to issue from a heart filled with joy at seeing how good He is, how good and glorious, how utterly unique, how unlike anyone or anything else in all of existence He really is, and what a privilege it is to know Him and how much we want others to know Him as well. That it's not a downgrade, it's not an evacuation, that it's actually an upgrade. It's to know life and life to the full. And so I'm going to pray that as we open the psalm, we'll see God as he really is and that he'll open our eyes to see. Let's pray that he would do that. Father God, we praise you that you are a good God. 
For you created the heavens and the earth. You are unmatched in power, in glory, in majesty. You own and rule over all things, that there is no thing over which you cannot say mine. That all things, living, inanimate, visible, invisible, belong to you rightfully, that they were created in love for you, to show your glory. And so, Father, we pray that as we open your word, you would show us what it is to respond to who you are and what you have done rightly. Show us that we are called to be a people who sing and rejoice in you and who are filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit to tell others about your great salvation. Father, we pray this for the sake of your holy name. Amen. I don't know if you noticed it as Jono was reading it out before, but Psalm 96, like many of the Psalms, has a fairly obvious theme to it. Have a look at it here. It'll come up on the screen for you. Psalm 96 has a repeated theme. 96.1, sing. 96.2, sing, bless, tell. 96.3, declare. 96.4, praise. 96.7, ascribe. Ascribe again. 96.8, guess what? It's back. Ascribe again. 96.10, say. 96.11, rejoice. The obvious theme, the constant commands throughout this psalm is that Christians are meant to be loudly and joyfully verbal about who God is. It's just over and over and over again so that you get it. Ascribe, sing, bless, tell, declare, praise, rejoice, say, just over and over. But the question is, why is it that Christians are called to be this? It's not a blanket call you know, to be noisy about something or to sing for singing's sake. Now, there's reasons attached to it. In 96.3, it says, declare his glory, his marvelous works. In 96.4, it says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. 96.9, worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. 96.8, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. What are we to sing about? His greatness, his goodness, his marvelous works, his holiness. If you were to sum it up all in one word, the, the word that this psalm uses is glory. We are to sing because God is glorious, because he has glory. But then the question is, what are we talking about when we're talking about God's glory? What does the word glory mean? Literally, the word in Hebrew means heaviness or weightiness. And some have thought, well, this is the idea that kind of kings or rulers at the time were, were weighed down on their thrones with gold and jewels. They're often pretty reasonably well. They'd been in a good paddock, so they were reasonably weighed down as well. And that was a sign of wealth of power, of importance, so this sign of heaviness. That could be one of the reasons, but probably most simply, and I think the metaphor carries through to our culture as well, is that we understand that weighty things are significant and real and good, and that often a metaphor for things that are superficial or impermanent or not valuable is lightness. Isn't that the case? That a description of a conversation that's significant or meaningful is a heavy conversation, a heavy topic of conversation. You say that book was weighty. It had significance to it. These are weighty issues. The idea of these things matter. Also, the idea that something is trivial or insignificant is that it's light. People who are considered to be false in the way they come across might be described as plastic. The idea that fakeness, superficiality, impermanence, triviality, all of those are connected with lightness. The idea that God is glorious, that He is weighty, that He is heavy means that He is significant. That he matters more than anything. He's the opposite. He's not fake. He's the ultimate reality. He's not false. He's the truth. He does not change. He's more valuable than anything. He is heavy. He's glorious. 
And this is what makes God valuable, what makes, makes Him worth praising. And when we think about it, God's value, God's glory, is a little bit like, like white light. If you, ever, if you ever did that high school experiment where you've got a prism and you shine white light through it, it spreads into like a rainbow of colors. And the idea is that when they all combine, you get, you get white light. Well, God's glory is kind of like that. The word glory is kind of like a catch-all term, but when you break it down into its individual components, into the various colors, you see that there are many things that make it up, and that's what this psalm is going into. There are many things that make God glorious and worthy of praise. Let's dig into a few of them. Look at what it says in Psalm 96, 4-5. It says, For great is the Lord... And most worthy of praise, he is to be feared above all gods, for the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. God is real. He really exists. He really made all things. He's not a figment of our imagination. He's not an idea that we came up with to comfort ourselves because there really is no meaning in the universe. The claim of 96 is that God is worth worshipping because he is real, that he actually made you. He existed. There are false gods, false religions, false worldviews that you can give yourself to and they are not real and they will not satisfy, but God is. He made you to be in relationship with Him. God is real, that's what makes Him glorious. But more than that, it says God is strong. Psalm 96.7 says this, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. God is strong, never fading in strength or passion. He's not like a bored child or bored adult who gets into things, gets over them, and then moves on. God is strong. He doesn't grow bored or disinterested. He doesn't grow weary or faint. He doesn't need to rest like you or I. That's what makes him glorious and worthy of praise. But more than that, it goes on. Look what it says in Psalm 96.9. It'll come up on the screen for you. It says, God is holy. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. He is holy. He is without sin. And this is something that you and I can't easily relate to. Because you and I have never seen with sinless eyes or looked upon a sinless reality. We don't know what that is like. God is different to us. He is holy. He is completely pure. He is totally free from sin. Never lied, stole, deceived. He cannot do evil or what is unjust. He is completely holy. But the idea of His holiness doesn't just carry through the idea that He is sinless. It also includes his otherness. There are many ways in which we are like God. We are made in his image. He relates to us as a father, Jesus as our brother, the Holy Spirit, our comforter. He gives us all these ideas in which we can relate to God. There are ways in which we are like him. But it's worth noting that God is not just like a supersized human in the sky. He isn't like us in every single way. There are ways in which God is completely different. God doesn't need anything outside of himself. Just think about this. The the technical term for it is his aseity, that there is nothing that he needs beyond himself. He is completely self-sufficient. Father, Son, and Spirit existed before all creation and didn't need anything. You and I have no idea what that experience is like. Everyone here was born into this world and nobody asked your permission for that to happen. You were thrown into this world and several years later you realized what had happened But really, none of us chose to exist. None of us chose what we would like, the time in which we would be born, the gifts that we'd be given, the family that we'd be born into. We had no control over that. And ever since the day we were born, we've depended on other life for our life. 
Things have to die in order for us to live. Whether animal or plant, whatever it is, you survive off the life of other things. You monster. God doesn't need that. He is perfectly self-sufficient in and of himself. But think also of his omnipotence, his all-powerfulness. He doesn't know what frustration is like. What he wants to happen is what does happen. He makes it happen. There is nothing that he cannot do. More than that, his omniscience, that he is all-knowing. There is nothing that he doesn't know. There is nothing mysterious to him. He perceives all and understands all. He is the Lord and there is none like him. This is why Psalm 96 is saying he's worth praising. This is why anything under the sun, any human reality will get tired of praising. But God, there is no reason not to. But more than that, he goes on, God is just. Look at what it says, Psalm 96, 13. It says, they will sing before the Lord, for he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in truth. God's, part of God's glory is that he does justice. He punishes with perfect justice. He hates with perfect hatred what is evil. He loves with perfect love what is good. He will establish justice forever. God is just. But more than that, Psalm 96.3, God is good. It says, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. That's what he does. Everything that he does is good. It says, declare his marvelous deeds. What God has done is worthy of praise because what he does is good. I mean, think of creation from the heights of Mount Everest to the depths of the Mariana Trench. God has created an incredible creation. And not only that, but he created people as the pinnacle of it. God has done good. He is worthy of praise. But more than that, and maybe to bring them all together, in Psalm 96.2, it says this. Sing to the Lord. This is God saves. Sing to the Lord. Praise his name, proclaim his salvation day after day. God's, God's glory is shown in its many various parts through the Psalms. But what we see in his salvation is all of them come together. Now, this psalm was written in anticipation of Jesus. The psalmist didn't know how great a salvation God was to do. In fact, most likely, all they had to look back on was the Exodus that we looked through last year. But here he says, sing to the Lord and praise his name and proclaim his salvation day after day. In creation and in various parts, we see just little aspects or glimpses of God's glory. And yet in the cross, when God comes to save sinners, we see it all come together. The many elements of his variegated glory come together in a single beam in the cross. See, Jesus went to the cross because sin had to be paid for by death. And he took it upon himself. But Jesus went to the cross to show God's justice and anger against sin and yet his mercy for sinners. In it, we see his power towards those who have rebelled against him. In it, we see his knowledge to bring together all the events of history in the cross. More than that, we see his unfading strength, his justice, his goodness, his mercy, his love. We see his glory. In God's salvation, we see his incredible glory. It's an incredible thing. And so Psalm 96.2 says, when you see what God is like, that He is glorious, it should move you to sing, tell, ascribe, declare. It should cause some kind of verbal response from you. And the psalm is meaning this literally. 
It's not that just you should be sort of mentally thinking, oh, wow, or that's interesting. It's saying it should actually evoke, when you see it clearly, a verbal response from you. And this is a natural human way that we've been designed. Several weeks ago, we went, we went down the south coast, and uh, it was slightly different this year, obviously because of the bushfires and things going on down there. The water wasn't as clear as, as it normally was. The sky was, uh, was scarred by smoke for most of the weeks. But on the second last day we were there, we went into the national park at open, and we went all the way down to the premier beach on the south coast, which, if you know it, is Murray's. It's right, and it's the closest to the open ocean. It's absolutely mint condition. It's white sand. It's a beautiful beach. And on that day, there's like a, you have to get through a bush trail to sort of get down there. But as people got to the sand, and I think partly because it had been so smoky and overcast and whatever for the previous weeks, when people got there and saw the, the clear sky, crystal clear water, aqua sort of fading into deep blues, the white sand immaculate, almost everyone who came down just said, oh, wow. Or just something came out of their mouth. And it wasn't because there was a sign that said you need to make a verbal response to this on your way down. It was the most natural and normal response to beholding something so beautiful. It's natural. It is the case when you see something incredible, it evokes a response from you. C.S. Lewis even said that the reason that we express our praise is not just as an expression of the joy, but because it completes the joy. It's almost like I would enjoy this less if I didn't say something about it, if I had to just hold my tongue about it. Psalm 96 is inviting us to enjoy God by verbalizing the praise of Him, by actually saying and declaring what is true and glorious about God, that when you see how wonderful He is, you can't help but say something. It's a natural and normal response. And more than this, he goes on to say in Psalm 96.3, to declare his glory among the nations and his marvelous works among the people. That the point of it is not just to declare to other people who believe it, though that is for the encouragement of the church, but that at some point this should turn towards those who don't yet know this good news, this glory, this God, with a desire to speak to them of it. So it started by saying, which job was it more like? Telling people that they've won a house or telling people that they need to evacuate their home? Psalm 96 is absolutely saying, it's like telling someone, here's something, that, here's a reality that you never knew could be yours. This is life and life to the full. But I realize that you're sitting there, you might be saying, well, I, like, I, I get where you're going with that that to tell other people about Jesus should issue from like a, a joy that you have in seeing who God is and what he is like. But we did kind of skim over Psalm 96.13, right? That it says, The Lord comes to judge the earth. It's not mucking around there. Isn't it the case that actually telling people the gospel is sort of both? It's telling people that, hey, there is a, a glorious God that you can know and wants to know you, who has created you to be in relationship with you and has made the way back to him. But it is also the case that he will judge the earth. That he has a set of day when he will reckon all things. That those who don't know him and don't trust in him will face a just God. But I guess the reason I want to make clear the emphasis is that it's to issue from a joy is because that is not only the central theme of Psalm 96 but of all of Scripture. That it is the case that God does not rule the hearts of his people through fear but through love. 
It's most clearly summarized in John 4.20 when he says, perfect love drives out fear. When you understand the love that God has for you, that is the main motivator for obedience and for telling others about him. The main way he rules his people is through his love and mercy rather than the fear of hell. No one became a follower of Jesus through sheer fear of judgment. Every now and then, every few years, I'll read a, a long biography, usually of, like, of some terrible dictator, which I know sounds thrilling for the summer holidays, but look, it is actually pretty interesting. You may also be sighing because you're like, okay, here we go, here's illustrations for the next decade. But anyway, you're getting it. So here it is. Uh, I started reading a biography of Mao Zedong, who was the leader of the Chinese Communist Republic, and uh, he was from end to end, it is fair to say, a, a, an incredibly horrible person. And it's always struck me, when I've read just a couple of these biographies about um, people who have ruled over incredible portions of the human population for an extended time, one of the things that has shocked me is that I always assumed in the back of my mind that they would be the kind of people who were gifted, diligent, talented, uh, just across all areas, but applied all their powers for evil rather than good. You know, an evil mastermind type. And it's almost never the case, or so far it's not been the case once. What usually is the case is that they have very few talents, but they'll have one particular one that they exploit to the full. For Mao, he was no good at military strategy. He had very little understanding of economics, even basic economics. He was not a good public speaker and made very little public presence. He had one skill that got him to where he was, which was to rule a quarter of the world's population at that time, and it was this. He had an ability to systematically terrify entire populations. And he was thorough and diligent and disciplined about it. There was not a single person near him, not even a 2IC, who felt safe to the end of their life. Even the people who were closest to him, he wouldn't consciously do it, but he would routinely subject them to interrogations or things so that they always felt at any moment I could be the next one on the chopping block. And that was how he ruled, and he managed to pass that on to an entire population. That was the one ability that he had, was to rule with terror. God does not rule with terror. As one author put it, it may be the case that the threat of judgment may scare us in the right direction, but to know God, to be a follower of God, is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. God rules the hearts of his people by winning them over. And he does this not in our, in our own power, but by sending his Holy Spirit to see who he is and what he is like, that we might behold him in his goodness and be overwhelmed by it. That's why Christians throughout time have been singing people. Because we worship a glorious God who brings about the praise of his people as they understand and behold his glory. I mean, look at what it says in Psalm 96. It says, Let the heavens rejoice and the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything that's in them sing for joy. Sing for the Lord, for he comes. God is worthy of our praise. So what do we do with this? Well, there are a couple of things, a couple of implications that roll out of this. The first one is that you cannot commend what you do not enjoy. It's simply the case that you cannot commend what you do not enjoy. Christians are called to sing. Christians are called to tell other people the great news of Jesus. And you can do neither of those unless you personally have a joy in who he is. I don't know if you've ever been to a shop or a cafe where 
trying to get someone to help you is like, is like you know, extracting information. Like, it's like pulling teeth. And at some point, you start to wonder, like, have I, did I run over your cat at some point or anything like that? But in other, in other times, you kind of get it. Oftentimes, people who are there, if they're not the owner themselves, they're just there to get a paycheck. They're not personally invested in it. They don't really, they're going to get paid whether you buy or don't buy. They don't really care that much. I mean, that's not, it's not a great functioning business, but it's, it happens, right? It's a commercial transaction. You kind of understand it. You can understand that someone who doesn't have a personal interest in something isn't going to kind of go the extra mile to sell you on it. Well, for those who follow Jesus, the call is to be the opposite. You cannot commend what you don't enjoy. Unless you know who he is, unless you behold his greatness, you will not sing, you will not tell others of his greatness. And so the first implication of this is to meet with God for joy personally. I don't know if you've been reading through the Psalms over this series. We sent out some daily readings. If you're wondering what Psalm you're up to, it's super easy. Whatever the date is, that's the Psalm, the 26th today. But just over a week and a half ago, We're reading through Psalm 16 in which it says, in his presence is fullness of joy. That to know God, to to take time each day to meet with him in his word, to pray to him, to behold him, is a joy, is the deepest joy for the Christian and one that no one can take from you. Unless you're meeting regularly to enjoy God and who he is, meeting with him regularly, communing with him regularly, you will not have a beholding joy of him. But the second and probably maybe most obvious implication of this is the call is to loudly and joyfully declare his praise in song. I mean, it's not, it's not a hard segue, is it, from this psalm to show that Christians are actually called to sing and to enjoy singing, to sing together. The shame of it is that culturally, and maybe, maybe it's our culture or just there's various ones around the world, that as we get older, there is something about us I think it's our self-consciousness that increases that means that just as you get older, you sing less. We, um, we were away, as I mentioned last week, and, um, and we were sitting on the, on the front veranda as a storm was coming over. And so we were watching this storm sort of slowly get closer and closer to the veranda. And at one point, Harper, our daughter, so she's four years old, came over to me and she said, Dad, I'm just going to cry out to the Lord. I thought, okay. I've never heard those words come out of her mouth, so I look forward to seeing what's going to happen here. And she turned away and walked to the steps. So I was sitting over there, and so she had her back to me. And she just took a deep breath, and she went, God, stop the rain. And then and we said, oh, we actually need the rain because of the bushfires and things. That would be really good. And so she kind of changed tack mid-flight and said, God, thank you for the rain. And then she started singing a song that was just like, obviously a mumble of, like a glossary of terms that she's heard in Christian songs about salvation and redemption and Jesus and something or other, which she doesn't at all understand, but was just singing away. But it is the case that she, like, when you're a kid, you just, you, you have no shame about these things. You can just break out in a song in the middle of a veranda as the storm's coming over. Just whenever is fine. As adults, we grow out of it. You might have even had the experience where you were singing loudly in the car and then realized to your utter terror that your window was down and that someone parked across from you is hearing you sing loudly. And it's, it's, I don't know if it's particularly Australians, maybe Western culture in general. We have this, we, we grow out of it. We, we grow this shame or self-consciousness about singing. And the command in Psalm 96 is that you are to sing. 
And it doesn't have specifications here about what type of personality you should be in order to do that. It's not the case that as a Christian you can say, well, there are kind of singing Christians and then there's me, you know, it's kind of potato, potato, that sort of thing. Here he's just saying the call is if you know and see the glory of God to sing it, regardless of your personality type, regardless of whether the music is precisely your genre or not. We're called to see the glory of God and to sing it. And we have opportunity right after this sermon to be able to do just that. In fact, we were scheduled for four songs, and then Mel and Jordan decided that that, because the series is called A Reason to Sing, that they would add a fifth on the spot. They're doing that just to serve you as well, because God is worthy of declaring his praise. It's a privilege as Christians to be able to gather to do that. That's the second implication of this psalm. And the last would be this. We are called to share this good news with other people. It is the case that Christians are called to not only experience this joy for ourselves, but for that to overflow in a love for others and a desire to point them to this joy as well. And it's got to start with us personally growing in joy in God himself. But it is meant to flow out to a love for others, a love for the nations, a desire to see others come to know this joy as well. Let's pray that as we round this series up, that God will be doing just that in our hearts. Let's pray. Father God, I praise you that you are a good and loving God. We praise you that you are glorious, that you are strong, that you are mighty, that you are everlasting, that you are real, that you are merciful, compassionate, full of patience and love and kindness, that you are a God who gives us a reason to sing. And so, Father, we pray that we would meet with you to behold who you are, to see your glory and wonder, to have our hearts won over by it day after day. We know, as the song says, that our hearts are prone to wander, that they are detuned often and each day need retuning, and that we are prone to forget or to grow familiar with how good and wonderful you are. So, Father, we pray that as we gather, it would be a reason to encourage one another to sing joyfully to you, to declare this wonderful and strange news that you're a God who loves sinners who have rebelled against you. And we pray as well that you would give us a heart to share your good news with others, to speak of your salvation, knowing that there is no other name by which people may be saved than Jesus. Father, we pray all of this for the sake of your holy name. Amen. We're going to take a moment to reflect. And I encourage you to take this time to think and reflect on the truth of that psalm, maybe even to get it open in front of you. And this week we're going to do it slightly differently and we'll see how it goes. But instead of having music playing in the background, we're going to do it in complete silence. And that is a, also a strange thing for a Western culture. We love noise and busyness and all those things that kind of segue things together. And it's difficult to stop and be quiet and to hold a single thought. But I encourage you to take this time, it's a short time, just a minute, to reflect on the truth of that psalm before we stand to sing of these great truths of God.